you know the standard wedding vows, and there's, yeah, it's beautiful vows, but th- like a lot of vows, they'll have those lines, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Have you ever wondered why part of your vows is vowing that in the good times, right, right the better times, the richer times, the healthier times? I mean, we get the, you know, the worst times, the poorer times for the uh, unhealthy times, but why the good times? Why do we have to put them as a part of vows, not just the bad times that I'm going to stick with you, but the good times as well? Have you ever wondered that? Well, I think we know the answer, right? Because good times, success, wealth actually could be as much of a test, in fact, sometimes more of a test of our faithfulness. So you guys will probably know this face. Who, who, who I, who, who's that? Harrison Ford, right? Han Solo. Um, Harrison Ford has actually been married three times. He's with his third wife now. And most people don't know his first wife, called Mary, with whom he had two kids. He was married in 1964 with her. So it was a long time ago. And in 1964, when they got married, he was a nobody. He had just dropped out of college. He had no money. He was trying very hard to break into acting. And success for him didn't come until his 30s. So it was pretty late. Right, married in 1964. They were divorced in 1979. Now, if you know a little bit about Harrison Ford's life or movie history, you'll know that 1977 was the year that what movie came out? Star Wars, not Indiana Jones. All right? Star Wars came out in 77. All of a sudden, the struggling actor Harrison Ford was a huge star. And then after that, Indiana Jones and all the sequels of Star Wars. And then in 1979, they split. Now, there's got to be other reasons, I'm sure. And we don't want to be too harsh. But you do think, right? 15 years they were married. In all the really tough times, they were married. But then things started looking up. And they split. You know what? The same thing can happen in our relationship with God. Yes, times of suffering and times of trials can take us away from God. That's true. But you know what? If you've been a follower of Jesus, a Christian for any length of time, you'll probably know that it's often the opposite times that are just as dangerous, perhaps even more dangerous. It's actually when times are good, when life is going well, that they're the easiest times to forget God, yeah? I mean, just think the last time you were on a fantastic holiday overseas and you're just traveling and you're just enjoying life. How many of you, while you were traveling and enjoying life and having a good time, actually spend more time in prayer, more time in the Word, more time in fellowship? Very few of us, right? Often it's the good times it's easiest to forget God. Well, this part of Deuteronomy, uh, if you haven't been with us for a while or first time, we've been uh, going through the whole book of Deuteronomy because we believe that every part of the Bible is the Word of God. And we're in these chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 today. And the main idea in these chapters is that Israel needed to be warned. God's Old Testament people, Israel, needed to be warned of the dangers, not of the bad times ahead. But they needed to be warned because there were good times ahead. And that's not just a word for them. It's an important word for us today. So I'm going to pray and let's, uh, let's get ready to hear God speak to us. Father God, right now I know that there are people who will resonate very strongly with the wilderness experience. Would you speak a special powerful word to them through this passage? There are also people here who will resonate with the good time experience. 
And similarly, your word has some really important things to say to them as well. So I pray that you will not spare us today, that your Holy Spirit would really speak to each and every heart here. You know where we're all at. You know what we need to hear. Help us to be ready and willing to hear you and be changed by you. Amen. All right, so I've got three points. You can follow the outlines you got when you came in. Firstly, we are coming to, uh, we've been in Deuteronomy for a number of weeks. Now we're coming to the end of the first key section of Deuteronomy. You remember Deuteronomy? You can think about this whole book as about decision time. It's 40 years since Israel left Egypt, saved from slavery, now about to go into the promised land. The second time, first time they didn't quite make it. But now they had to make a decision and, and the whole book can be seen as Moses preaching three sermons to them to tell them to make the right decision, right? The time has come, make a decision. The first 11 chapters, Israel is at the place of decision. And you really see that at the end of our section, chapter 11 will end with that decision being spelt out in black and white. So this is what Moses says. Have a look at that. He says, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord, the curse if you disobey the commands. It's pretty clear, right? You've got a choice. It's going to be blessing or curse. It's up to you. And we are back. All right. Thank you. Everyone listening at home. Hello, we're back. Okay. So chapters 8 to 11 is a warning, not because tough times are ahead, but as I said, because good times are ahead. Now you see, you see that um, we didn't read the whole of chapter 8, so please keep it open because we want to look at the whole chapter. We'll look at the verses we didn't read earlier. But chapter 8, verse 7, look at there. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Now I want you to picture these words, okay? To try and imagine it. A land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. All right, this is a picture of the promised land and it's really a picture of the Garden of Eden, kind of Mark 2, 2.0. And it's in these times that God is saying, you're about to go into this place. You're about to have these good times. Don't get proud. Don't get self-satisfied. All right, Because the good times are dangerous for you if you're not ready. And you see that warning both in chapters 8 and 9. So chapter 8, the verses that we did read, look at verse 10 again. When you've eaten and are satisfied, because that's kind of what the land is going to be like. It's going to be amazing, right? What do you do? Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Yeah? When you get into this amazing land, don't forget him. In chapter 9, 
Right? Chapter 9 is going to start with all, when all these nations that you're about to conquer, when they fall before you like dominoes, because that's what's going to happen. God's going to give them victory if they continue to walk with Him and trust in Him. When that happens, God tells them in chapter 9, verse 4, don't turn to it. We kind of looked at it a little bit last week. He says, when that happens, don't think it's because you are special and righteous and extra good that these nations are going to fall before you. It's not because of your righteousness. In fact, it's because of their wickedness. Now, unfortunately, we won't have time to really look into chapters 9 and 10. I'm going to focus on chapter 8. But if you're reading yourself, and I hope a lot of you are reading the whole of Deuteronomy, the bits that we won't cover, but just to give you a little bit of a heads up, um, chapters 9 and 10 are going to focus on God really telling Israel, you know, you guys, it really isn't about your righteousness because I'm going to give you a a history lesson. And history lesson God gives them, in, and it takes two chapters to do, is to, to help them remember that at Mount Sinai, just after he gave them the Ten Commandments, what they did. What did they do? Moses is up on the mountain. God has just spoken to his people. And they, while Moses is away, decide to create this idol, this golden calf, and start worshiping it. All right? They just come face to face with God, and already they turned away from him. And God wanted to remind them, it really isn't because of your righteousness that I'm about to give this land to you. And so when you get into the land, do not think it's because of your righteousness because you came this close to being destroyed yourself, but for the mercy of God and Moses' role as a mediator. That's chapters 9 and 10. All right? We're going to focus on chapter 8 because chapter 8 is going to tell us and summarize for us how it is that God's people then and we today, if you're a follower of Jesus, how we can make sure we do not forget God and abandon Him. When the times are good. So my next two points are going to tell us how. The first is, we've got to firstly understand what God is doing when the times are tough. Now some of you will really appreciate this. Those of you who know me and have listened to me a while, you know that I love sandwich structures. Okay, anytime there's a bit of a sandwich in the Bible, it gets me hungry, but it's also really cool because it's very memorable. Chapter 8 is structured like that. It's wonderful. You know, it's wonderful when you see these things. Um, God is very clever. Um, chapter 8 is like that. And you see the highlighted bits, right? It's all trying to get at these two points, right? The two points are A and A dash, remember. And the center of the sandwich, the meat, is don't forget. Saying the same things in two different ways, right? Remember, don't forget. What are they to remember? Well, look at chapter 8, verse 2. All right, we're going to look at the other, the, the, the two parts of the sandwich. First, chapter 8, verse 2, which is the time when God humbled them. Chapter 8, verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now go to the parallel bit on the other side of the sandwich. Verse 15, right? Verse 15. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. See how they're parallel, don't you? Israel was in the desert for how long? 40 years. The desert is no picnic in the park, is it? All right, verse 15, it's thirsty and waterless. There's snakes and scorpions. It's, it's basically Australia, I think. 
Right? It's a terrible, terrible place. But most of all, it's a humbling place. Verse 2, God did it to humble you. Verse 16, He did it to humble you. Because you remember Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they came out in a blaze of glory, yeah? Remember what God did to rescue them. There were signs, there were wonders, there were miracles. The Red Sea, goodness, parted so they could walk through. There were 10 plagues, one after the other, that kept showing how mighty God was and how weak and stupid Pharaoh was. They came out and they were loaded with gold, silver and plunder and they didn't even fight one battle. The, the Egyptians just gave them money to come out with. They must have felt like the strongest, most powerful nation on earth. But that was 40 years ago because they hit a snag, didn't they? And they spent the next 40 years in the desert. Think about that. After that amazing beginning, now they spend 40 years of wandering around, about a million of them probably, going in circles, 40 years seeing one after another of their mightiest and strongest warriors die one by one. 40 years of not tasting the meat and the wine and the milk and the honey that they were promised. That's a long time. That must have been such a humbling time to go from here to here. But you see in this passage what God was doing, right? What God wanted His people to know, what He wanted His people to see, was how to interpret, how to understand those 40 years in the wilderness. How do you read those 40 years? Because here's the thing. They could see it as a defeat, couldn't they? They could see this as God has abandoned us. All right, started well, now He's left us. They could shake their fists at God. God, you are unfaithful. You are untrue to your word. You promised these things, but we're now... They could get disappointed, jaded, disgruntled at God. They could go around feeling hopeless and weak and defeated. But you see, that's exactly what God wanted to show them. That wasn't how they were to read their situation. No, 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 no. You mustn't think that. Verse 2, He humbled you in order that He might test you. Verse 16, It was a time of humbling and testing. Now, what's the meaning of test here? Those of you who are Asian are like, no, test, ah, trigger warning. Okay, test here is particularly the kind of testing word used about metals. It's the word that means to refine, to test the quality of gold, of silver, of precious things. In other words, you don't test something that is worthless, right? You don't test your cubic zirconia. That's a fake diamond. Um, you test precious metals by putting them through a furnace. You test them by refining them, burning away the dross so that you get pure gold. And this is what God is saying. Those desert years, the tough times that you, that was your furnace. I put you through that because I know that there is gold at the end of that. Right? You see that, don't you? He said, verse 2, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. God said, I'm going to put you through the test so that your heart would come out as gold, would be true and devoted to me. That's the purpose of the testing. Let's keep going. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. Let's talk more about the humbling. What happened there, verse 3? He humbled you. What else is he doing? Causing you to hunger. Why? 
then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Right? Know how to read your desert years, your wilderness years. The desert experience could have been read again. Failure. God is absent. But instead, you see, it was a time, God says, of teaching, of instructing, of experiencing God's goodness, of discipline. Verse 5 says, God is like a loving father as a man disciplines his son. So the Lord God disciplines you. And like any good father, he is more obsessed with his children's joy and happiness and welfare than they could possibly be of themselves. And in order to bring them into the place of greatest eternal joy and happiness, he needs to discipline them. Now, a lot of us will, again, trigger word, you think of discipline and it's like, ah, that can't be good. Discipline is always bad. All right? And it's because for a lot of us, um, for some of us at least, our parents are not perfect. I'm not a perfect father. And a lot of my discipline falls way short. And maybe even for you, there's a chance that discipline for you was so negative because it, it was borderline or possibly was abusive. Now, that's not the picture of biblical discipline. Because firstly, God is not like us. And God is not like your human dads if you've had bad experiences with fatherhood. Biblical discipline, and because it's negative connotations of that sometimes it's helpful to remember that when the bible talks about discipline it's it's sort of like the word training yeah you think of the word training i think most of us have a have a much more positive understanding of training yeah and, and that's tied up with discipline as well so think about um, how, i mean those of you who who drive right driving is a wonderful privilege to be able to drive a vehicle it's convenient you can operate a car and you can get to places you know um, your grandparents, your great-grandparents didn't have the opportunity to drive as much as you did. It's a wonderful thing. But you also know that a car is a huge weapon, right? Going at certain speeds, it is a really dangerous thing to drive a vehicle. To be able to enjoy the safety of driving, you needed discipline. Just think how important discipline was. Now, you didn't call it discipline, but that was what was happening. You had a driving instructor, whether that was someone you paid for, your parents paid for, or it was your parents, all right? And, and, and in order to train you to be ready to operate a vehicle, what did they have to do? They had to teach you. They had to teach you road rules and things that you could do, as well as negative things that you couldn't do. They had to warn you. You had to do, nowadays, what, 150 hours of practice, of experience. And then you had to pass a test. All right? How many people passed first go? Wow, good on you guys. So did I. Um, all right? All of that so that you could be ready to operate a vehicle safely and well. All of that was discipline. But you see, the effect of it was good. So you can enjoy the blessing of having a car and not be a danger to others and yourself. Israel's experience in the desert was like that. It was supposed to humble them, to refine them, to teach them things in that context that they couldn't learn any other way. And so verse 3, we read that, you know, they were fed by God, a miraculous bread from heaven, manna. Now, we don't have time to look at the um, original accounts in the book of Exodus. But if you, if you know the story, you'll know that God provided miraculous bread for them. And the bread would only be enough 
for one day, except on the Sabbath day, when it would be enough for two days. And so each day they had to trust that there would be bread the next day. And if they tried to hoard and keep the bread from today for tomorrow, it would go rotten. And so every single day they had to live on the basis of what? The promise of God. What was God teaching them? Well, we read it there, don't we? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word or every promise that comes from the mouth of God. What a way to instruct people that every day we live dependent on God. Look what he was doing with the manna experience. He didn't give them bread for a month, bread for a year. Day by day by day, they were learning. They were creating a habit. They were being trained that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then verse 4, they had clothes that never wore out, feet that didn't swell. I've got kids. Clothes wear out like that. All right? Shoes especially. Something supernatural was going on here. God was providing for them because they had no other means of getting clothes, materials. They're in the desert. You can't spin cotton in the desert. So imagine that. Imagine being Israel. And every day in those 40 years, there is food on your plate because of a miraculous intervention every single day. Imagine that every mile you walk, you know that it was God's power that prevented your feet from swelling, your clothes from tearing. And then imagine, as we read in in the book of Numbers, that, that in the day there's this huge pillar of cloud that would guide you so you knew where to go. And then at nighttime, this pillar became fire so that it would protect you and give you light and warmth. Imagine having 40 years where you experienced so many miracles that it just became commonplace. That was what it was like in the desert for Israel. If they only had eyes to see, they would see that in the desert, In the wilderness, in the place of humbling, was the place where God was with them the most. And He was with them to train them, to teach them, so that they could be so dependent on Him and so reliant on His Word that it just be a habit. And why? Because one day the desert experience would end. Remember, this is the point of chapter 8. Because one day they would go into the land and food would be everywhere. And clothes would be abundant. And they would be rich. And then these lessons really mattered, didn't they? Because then they wouldn't forget God. Do you see, the 40 years was the goodness of God in action. If only you have eyes to see point is it's all about how you read your situation israel could have felt abandoned rejected by god instead god says hey you know what i was never closer than when you were in the desert now a lot of you are here and you know exactly how this speaks to you don't you because many here are right now in the wilderness for you it's maybe illness long-term, maybe loneliness, depression, anxiety, unemployment, unemployment, or just real unhappiness with your financial or employment situation, relational breakdown, infertility, marriage is difficult, or you, you would love to be married but you're single, 
Or maybe it's habitual sin or addictions. A whole host of other things. And you feel so dry and parched and far away from God. So far from joy and peace that you want. That's where you are. And God wants to say to you today, are you reading the situation rightly? Your wilderness, are you seeing it correctly? Do you know that God would not allow one ounce of suffering into our lives that is not measured, purposeful, intentional? And He does not allow one ounce of suffering into our lives without offering us more of himself. More ability and power to experience him. More of an offer to be intimate and know that no matter what you're going through, he is that close. In fact, closer than you could possibly imagine. Um, I first preached this sermon on Deuteronomy 8 about 11 years ago, when honestly, 11 years ago, things were going really well in terms of, um, especially in terms of ministry and my life as a fairly young pastor then. And I couldn't imagine speaking these words 11 years ago, that in 11 years when I preached it again, of the kind of things I would have to learn in the wilderness 11 years later. I couldn't imagine some of the difficulties that I've experienced in ministry since. And even in the last couple of years. But I want to tell you this. Now, I didn't know when I first wrote these words and spoke these words that it's absolutely true. It has been harder in ministry than I could possibly imagine in the last few years. But God has been closer. And I don't know how to explain that. God has been closer. He has been more near and more dear through the wilderness than I could possibly imagine 11 years ago. And I want to tell you that from my own experience because these words are true. Because sometimes you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. And though I don't want to have to go through everything again, I don't think I could have learned it any other way. You know, sometimes God rattles our identity things. Like you, you didn't know that money and material things were so much a part of your identity and self-worth until God takes it away. And then all of a sudden it's revealed. You didn't know that your job meant so much to you until you've been unemployed for a long time. You didn't know that your identity and security came from your dreams of having a certain life, living in a certain house with a certain spouse until these things don't come true. It's in the wilderness, you see, that God exposes what is really dear in our hearts, isn't it? And what does he do? He burns that away. So that when all those things are gone and you have nothing but Jesus, and he gives you joy because you have nothing in Jesus, then you realize, ah, all along I only needed Jesus. But while I was rich and employed and relationships were all working out and everything was hunky-dory, I would never have known that. Do you see? Do you see what God is doing? 
So do you know that in tough times, God can be that near, that close, that much more than you could possibly imagine? If only you would cast yourself on Him and seek Him. And here's the other thing. Do you know that every winter is preparation for spring? It never feels like it when you're in the midst of winter. It feels like it's going to go on forever. All right? Tough times never ends. But you know what? The wilderness, the 40 years, that's a long time. Even the 40 years of wilderness for Israel was preparation for something. Look at verse 16 again. Look at 16. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known to humble and test you. Look at this bit. So that in the end it might go well with you. Here's the thing. The times of testing and humbling have a purpose. What's the purpose? To position you for more blessing. You got that? That's always the case. God is positioning you for abundance. He's actually preparing you for blessing. The lessons in the desert are to prepare you for that. Now, I want to be careful, don't I? Because I'm not saying that what is on the other side of the, the suffering is always going to be what you want it to be, what I want it to be. So, for example, if you're suffering from long-term sickness now, I'm not promising that God is necessarily going to heal you completely in this life. I hope He does. We pray that He does. We pray for miracles. But it doesn't always happen. He doesn't always promise that. What I am saying, though, is that even so, there is another kind of blessing, another kind of richness, another kind of abundance that is waiting for you on the other end of your desert experience. That even if you never get healed until heaven, and those of you who know the story of Joni Erickson Tata, yeah, quadriplegic, read it up, Google it, you'll know that she never, has, she's, she never got healed. She won't until she gets to the new creation, be able to walk again. But someone who knows Joni, uh, I was with Francis Chan a couple of years ago when he came out to speak at a rice rally. And, and, and Francis, I've never met Joni, but Francis says he, when he is in the presence of Joni, he's always in tears. Because there is just this closeness to God that she has that is indescribable. This quadriplegic who hasn't been able to work for decades. How is that possible? Because even though she never got healed, and even if God never heals you, God has something He wants you to be ready to enjoy. And that could be something like what Joni's experience is, that deeper, richer, more intimate, powerful walk with God that you could never have gotten otherwise. Or maybe in this we've experienced, um, a particular suffering in our life, a particular loss in our life, has actually meant that God has used our prayers for the same sufferings in others in a more powerful way than we could possibly imagine, even miraculously. Ask me about that later. Or maybe it's richer relationships with other people who are also suffering that you never would have known, or just with the family of God, that, that because you've been in need, you've had to reach out, and they've come around you, and you've just formed these new, deeper relationships you couldn't have otherwise had when you took it for granted. Or maybe it's more meaningful ministry. I don't know what it is. I really don't know what it is. All I know is that God is saying He does not waste suffering. It's always there to lead to increase, to blessing, to abundance. Suffering prepares us for that. Suffering prepares us, positions us to be ready to receive greater blessings. Because here's the thing, God loves you too much to release blessings on you if you are not ready. Right? If you've ever experienced drifting away from God in even the momentary good times like a good travel experience, just think if God gave you everything your heart's desire wanted here and now. 
and you weren't ready for that. That would be an absolute disaster, wouldn't it? It'd be like me saying to my kids, unlimited screen time. Here's a bank account with all the money you could ever use. Just have my credit card. Here's the house. It's empty for you. Use it. Party all the time. Here's a couple of cars. You're only 10, but drive it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, any parent would know that's a disaster to release blessings on people that are not ready is not an act of love. It's an act of cruelty. And God loves us too much for that. Have you thought of that? That these wilderness years are to prepare you for blessing. And you're going through them so that you would develop the habits and the frame of mind and the intimacy with God so that when the blessings come, you would not forget God, but you would take His blessings with Him along with you. And that leads to my next point, doesn't it? Because it's not just in the bad times that we need to remember the Lord. It's the good times. And the key to not forget God in the good times is pretty simple. All right, see it there in verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Give glory where glory is due. Praise the Lord for the good land He has given you. Verse 11, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, the laws and decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, the solution is praise. But praise here isn't just about worship songs, even just saying hallelujah, just being super pious, you know, when people come and accept their Academy Awards, just want to thank God. No, it's not just about that. Because the opposite of praising God is verse 14. The opposite of praise is pride. Your hearts become proud. You take credit rather than give credit where credit is due. See, verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. See, they mustn't think that just because now that they're in the land and they can grow their own food, drink from their own wells, patch up their own clothes, make their own shoes, that it's any less God providing for them. Yeah? In the absence of the miracles, when everything is abundant, don't forget that they are still miracles in the ordinary. Now, I think we in the West, we're most in danger of that, aren't we? Yeah, giving ourselves the credit for our blessings. How often do you think it's my hard work, my study, right? Getting the right university degree, I have to, you know, really slog my guts out to get into that school, to get into that uni, to do that course, to get that job. And then I work so hard in that job to get the promotions I have, to earn the money I have. I've put in the hard work. That's why I'm where I am. Well, let me ask you a question. Did you get to choose the kind of family you were born in or the country you were born in? Because a laborer in the country of Venezuela works just as hard as you, if not more. And because of an economic crisis where basically inflation is something like 8 million percent, like, no joke, right? There's so many zeros after that number, I didn't even know how many, but it was something like 8 million percent. Inflation, everything they do, all of that effort goes to nothing, they work harder than us, but they were born in a different country, in different circumstances. So what makes you think that it's your hard work 
that gives you the ability to enjoy what you've got. See, it's all from God. Don't take credit for that. It's all from God. And so that's why the wilderness is such a good learning experience. Because you learn that in the wilderness, right? When you're humbled and you're dependent and you're thankful. Well, don't let that change when times get good. Now, the test often, if you're in a good place, by the way, and things are going well, you're going to come to a good place and things aren't going to be as hard, you're going to leave the wilderness behind. The test of whether or not you can enjoy God's blessing when times are good is this. Generosity. That is always the test, is it not? Generosity. If you understand that everything comes from God, then you will be open-handed when things are going well and you are successful. And you will give rather than hoard. You will share rather than indulge. And by the way, it's not just money, right? It's time, it's relationships, it's joy, it's peace. All the things that you enjoy in good times, be open-handed. Now, by the way, if you're thinking, well, if I'm going through a bad time, that means I don't have to be generous. Here's the thing, right? You're not going to be learned to be generous in the good times if you're not also pushing to be generous even in the tough times. Conclusion. Know what God is doing when times are tough. Know how to enjoy His blessings when times are good. Now, the, the perfect model of this is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Now, I know you think, what? Why did Jesus have to learn this? Well, you know that in Hebrews, don't turn, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, don't turn to it. It says that even though Jesus was the Son of God, and we know that Jesus never sinned and He was perfect, even though He was the Son of God, even He had to learn obedience through what it suffered. Got that? God, the Son, had to Himself learn obedience through what was suffered. He also had to go through tough times. And in that was learning for Him. Now, now you see that, of course, when you see the temptation of Jesus right at the beginning of His ministry. And this will just really make sense to you now because we've read part of Deuteronomy. Look what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yeah, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, isn't he? Now, we don't have time to read the other two temptations, but three times the devil tempts him, and each temptation is really the same in different guises. Each temptation was, Jesus, you can take matters into your own hands. You can have glory now. You can have honor now. You can feed your hungry belly now after 40 days of fasting. You can have it now without the suffering. Satan was offering him glory without the cross. And Jesus each time said no. And he quotes Deuteronomy. Because for Jesus, there would be no promised land without wilderness. There would be no blessing without suffering. There would be no glory without the cross. Yeah? And isn't that good for us? Because here's the thing. Because Jesus went to the cross, and we know that he went to the cross in our place for our sin, bearing all of our punishment, and on the cross, Jesus was abandoned, though he was undeserving. But because he had our sins on him, he was abandoned, genuinely abandoned by God. You know what that means? That because he did that for you, for me, 
that no matter what you're going through or how you are feeling, or even if you're in the position you're in now because you're thinking, no, it's because I messed up. You know what? Even then, you are not abandoned. No matter how you're feeling in the wilderness, you are not abandoned. Why? Because someone was abandoned already for you. No matter how you feel, God is close because someone already was rejected on your behalf and it's finished. And because he is now in glory, right, the cross and then glory, he freely and generously gives from his glory all that is his and that includes his Holy Spirit, his wonderful presence to be with you, to encourage you, to counsel you, to intercede for you, to work in you, to empower you, to fight your battles, all the wonderful things the Holy Spirit does, He gives to you because He is now in glory. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, He is offering that to you today. Wouldn't it be good that whether you're going through a wilderness now or suffering to come, because we all go through it, that Jesus means And having here means that you will never be abandoned, never be alone. So are you in a tough time? Is it a wilderness for you right now? It will not last forever. It will not last forever. So know what God is doing in it. You want to run away from God. It's understandable. Often we're still angry at Him. We don't admit it, but we are. And so we don't want to draw close to Him. Right? It's what we feel like doing. But you should be doing the opposite. If you see what God is doing, lean in closer. Times when you feel he is furthest away because he hasn't gone anywhere. Lean in closer, even if it's with tears. Lean in closer in your wilderness and see what he is doing. Or are you in good times? You know what? It won't last forever either until you get to heaven. So know how to enjoy these blessings with humility and thankfulness and generosity. I'll get the band up. Let's pray.